This is more than therapy podcast. More than therapy. This is more than therapy. More than therapy podcast. This is more than therapy. More than therapy podcast. This is more than therapy podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition. Edition edition welcome to another episode <laughs> of more than therapy today we have marcy and you know what i did not ask her, how to pronounce her last name and i did not want to say it wrong <laughs> I guess we'll have her introduce herself and today we have a very special guest our speaker today is marcy pusey <laughs> we're going to talk about trauma trauma the story of trauma. We may go off topic, but it all be related to the concept of trauma. Marcy, please tell them about your work in trauma. Yeah, so I am a certified rehabilitation counselor and from there did a real deep dive into trauma specifically. What does it mean? Where? How does it start? Where does it come from? What does recovery look like? And became a certified trauma and resilience practitioner on top of it. Some of that, again, is the result of having experienced things myself and wanting to understand them. But now I get to use that awareness through story coaching. I help people tell their story as a tool for healing uh, traumatic experiences. And I do a lot of story work, not just the how to tell a good story, how to heal from it, but also how to get it out into the world in a way that actually also offers healing and inspiration and encouragement to other people. That's just a gist of what I do with it now. Indeed, indeed. Trauma impacts a lot of people. I became an addiction specialist just based on the fact that I wanted to work with trauma, based on the trauma that I experienced as a child and then again as an adult. Um, Sometimes trauma can lead you down a path to want to be a helper. Other times trauma can lead you down a path to become in your mind, a victor that you overcame it by becoming the very thing that, that messed you up, that destroyed you, that impacted you. As for example, if a child is abused by, let's say, someone, they may, you know, have issues in their relationships, or they may end up perpetrating themselves, depending on, you know, what kind of support they got, or the impact it had on them. Their age can be a factor, and things like that. Now, those are very small, small populations of those impacted by trauma, but those are the ones that get the most attention. Sometimes trauma, the way people deal with it is simply falling into maladaptive and addictive behaviors. Might be smoking weed excessively. It might be drinking alcohol excessively. It might be entering into relationships that mirror the trauma that you experienced at one time, basically making the same mistakes over and over. And you wonder why, why am I always in this situation? Because subconsciously you haven't dealt with it. And therefore you fall into the same patterns of doing it. And then subconsciously, you know what you're comfortable with until you deal with it. That is what your brain chooses. Your brain moves you into the direction in which it understands and knows as you know, change is for many hard. Your work in trauma is very interesting because you addressed it in many ways. But in order to get to this place, People have different paths to get here to be a helper in this field. What was some of the catalysts 
that caused you to want to be that helping being, to be that person to address trauma head on. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for all that. That's so good. I, in my own childhood, I was raised in Southern California, low income, um, poverty level at times. Three of the years of my childhood were to a single mom um, who did stay home with me. So there was like, okay, well, we're living on welfare. We're living on these other things to allow us to be together. Um, But in and of itself, that was a form of complex trauma in that even though my mom never directly said, I don't know where our next meal is coming from. There were days where we didn't know the next meal or where it was coming from. And so in just my origins there, I already kind of took on a message that nobody who was like, nobody was really able to take care of me, or at least I couldn't rely on anyone to take care of me. So from very young, I just kind of took on like, well, I'll just take care of myself. And then nobody has to worry about me and they can always worry about themselves because their lives are hard enough. I witnessed also the repercussion of parents who had survived traumatic events and were still in recovery. And that's distracting to raising a child in a healthy home. So that was kind of some of the beginning. We moved a lot. So there was a lot of loss and change that that reinforced some of those messages I took on. I didn't have a chance in some places to develop any kind of roots or consistency to experience uh, community or, or people taking care of me, right? Um, or nurturing or looking out for me. And then as I got older, um, lots of just hard relational things, but eventually I began to foster children, adopted two of those foster children. And I went into that thinking, oh, I'm such a noble person. I'm going to rescue these kids. They're going to be so grateful and they're going to be healed and whole and all the things. And then that's not what happens. Like it's actually, that's not how it works. And so that's where I was already going to school for social services and going to school to become a counselor and a therapist. But it was there that I really took a deep dive into trying to understand how to address the traumatic events. Um, I ended up recently learning that the marriage I'd been part of for 16, 17 years had been abusive. I'd never known what to call the behavior inside of it, but then it came out that it was, it had a name and it was abusive. And so that has like, put our family in another tailspin of transition and change. Um, and so I guess there's a lot of it. There was a murder in my family four days before our first wedding anniversary. Um, my father-in-law murdered my mother-in-law while we were sleeping in the house down the hall. He was in some kind of psychotic blackout. I have a TEDx talk where I cover a little more detail about this and a book while we slept. Um, but man, like, here, I didn't even know yet that I'd married an abusive person. I'm real early in. And then his mom is murdered by his dad while we're sleeping in the house. So even that like kind of aggravated um, aspects of the marriage that were hard, but now we're all in this grief thing. So I think like many people, there's just these moments and these events throughout life. And I love what you said that either drive you towards wanting to be a helper to like it's okay if somebody else can go through this easier or know they're not alone or have someone to care for them or whatever, whatever. Like I want to be that person or those same moments or opportunities to keep the message. Like, see, life is out to get me. I'm cursed. I have bad luck. Um, everything bad is always going to happen to me. Like we take up these messages along the way. And I think that is a huge part of what determines which direction we go. And I'm, I'm grateful that I chose to be a helper helper. I don't, 
I, I don't know that I, I was, I don't know. I don't know why, like I could have turned any direction, but I think I just have an optimistic spirit and a, and a helpful heart. And I just wanted people to have a better life experience than I'd had, or at least have better supports than I had, or man, why isn't this therapy working? You know, I wanted people to find therapy that works because why, why not? Why can't we find therapy that actually genuinely treats trauma? So to sum it up, I think just having had murder in my family and poverty in my family and um, a sense of having to take care of myself as kind of a complex form of trauma, um, leaving an abusive marriage, like all of these were opportunities and invitations to go a direction. And just my heart is to learn what I can from those and help others do better for someone else coming along who might be like me or to at least know they're not alone and going through their same situation. Indeed, indeed. You've been doing this work for a long time and I see, I can understand the journey which brought you to this point. Um, one of our listeners, one of our watchers, whatever you want to call it, has a question and maybe together yeah. you and I can address it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is trauma and how does it differ for post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, I can start. We could just we could just address it together. Um, thank you for that question, caller, listener, whatever you call yourself these days. <laughs> Watcher on Facebook, I don't know. I know for me, the PTSD is a is a, a definitive diagnosis, which is you know something that might last. You know, it has to be these symptoms have to be so many of them, and it has to last a significant amount of time in order for it to beat the criteria. I believe it's six months, but I haven't taken the test in a long time, so I don't remember. First, so trauma could be, you know, the first, the minute it hits, you know, the second it hits, trauma. It could be something that lasts a long time, but doesn't have all the attributes associated with it to make it a definitive diagnosis. As many people experience trauma and don't really define any definitive diagnosis traits, such as, you know, nightmares or shock or, you know, things like that, you know, trembling or reactions but they might have a lingering feeling with them, which may lead them down a dark path. You know what I'm saying? But without enough for us to make a diagnostic criteria, which is what PTSD might be. Yeah. Marcy. Yeah, that's good. I'll get, I geek out on the brain. So I'll just do like a low level brain thing. Um, trauma is when you've experienced a traumatic event. So, and that can be different for different people. You can have an event that for you, you perceived as traumatic and someone else can be that same event and not have the same. So it's something where your brain perceived that the event you were in created or triggered your fight or flight. So if the event triggers your fight or flight, immediately it's considered a traumatic event because your survival skill has kicked in. Your brain, the alarm went off and said, oh my gosh, my life is at risk. Therefore, um, I need to run and get away or fight this off or freeze or fawn. And I think they keep adding to the list of responses your fight or flight can do. Um, I often talk about the way the brain works through the lens of three different animals. I talk about the owl and our prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for all of your rational thinking, making meaning of language, cause and effect, delayed gratification, like all of your executive functions that help you with intelligence, like not just intelligence, but like appear intelligent, um, happen with this owl in the front of our brain. The amygdala is what I refer to as the meerkat. 
and the meerkat is on the lookout, like we think of them out in their little wilderness, right? On the lookout for danger and is the one responsible for telling the owl what to do to stay safe and what to do and telling the tiger what to do to stay safe. And your tiger represents the brainstem. And in your brainstem, that's all your automatic functions, breathing, sleeping, eating, things that you do without thinking about it. So if you've got all three of these animals in your brain, the owl's just hanging out, chilling, tiger's back there relaxing, and your meerkat all of a sudden senses danger, senses that this is an event that we would say is traumatic. It's going to tell the owl, go fly away, get safe, which essentially means that your prefrontal cortex turns off or dims down. If you're crossing the street and a bus is coming, you don't need to sit there and rationally think about it, process cause and effect, put meaning to language. You need to get out of the way. And it's your tiger that gets you out of the way. So your meerkat says, owl, fly, get safe, tiger, get out here or run, whatever it is that feels the safest to your body. So that's a traumatic event that can lead to unprocessed trauma. If in your response, you're able to fight and successfully overcome the threat. You experience the traumatic event, but it may not remain stuck as trauma. If you're able to run away and get away from the threatening events and successfully feel that you've escaped and overcome the moment, you may have you have experienced a traumatic event, but you may not have trauma. Trauma is when you cannot process through the experience. You felt helpless, alone. Um, unsafe, which is why it was triggered to begin with, but you froze. In the freeze, your brain, instead of taking the event and filing it away into parts of your memory that are helpful, like, oh man, that bus came and it went and I survived. Moving on, it gets filed away. It's not something where every time you see a bus, you're scared like you're back in the street again. But if you couldn't get out of the way, if something happened to you, then it keeps it present in your memory. It keeps it actually, it stores it with your tiger in the brainstem. That's the difference between unprocessed trauma and a traumatic event. Now we also call trauma, trauma, but we're actually referring to a traumatic event that didn't process all the way through. So I tend to refer to it as unprocessed trauma that's stuck in the back of our brain. So when it's stuck back there, it's stuck in the sensory part, which is very, very present. The other parts of your brain can categorize it to a time and a place in history. It becomes a memory that was, and you probably learned from it, and maybe you later laugh about it almost, like after, you know, Haha, looking back, that was funny. Or maybe you don't, and you just have this gratitude that you survived. But if that processing all the way through didn't happen, it stays in your brainstem with the tiger, and it remains present. And that's where if it's big enough, if it's disruptive enough to you, you can receive a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. That is having those events so lodged into your brainstem that it's constantly present. So if we think of that war victim, which is where it often comes up when we think of PTSD, right? If we think of a veteran who's come back from war and they hear a car backfire and immediately their brain is like, I'm walking through a grenade field back where I was in Vietnam or Afghanistan or wherever it was. Like, because there's not been a processing of it, their brain cannot distinguish between the associations that it's made with that event and other possibilities of being back there. Your meerkat stays on high alert. So not only do you have memory trapped there that needs to be addressed, but your meerkat is like, I never want to be caught in that situation again because that almost killed me. And so it stays hyper vigilant. 
So we also see that in people who've been diagnosed with PTSD, though you cannot have a diagnosis of PTSD and still have that level of hypervigilance, that level of like your brain associating to things and making it really present. I'll just add one other thing is there's also complex PTSD. And that's not something we talk about a lot, but we should because it's easy to think, well, gosh, I haven't been to war. So all of these symptoms I'm having can't be PTSD because I wasn't in the 9-11 building. I didn't have this one big cataclysmic moment that my brain froze and is stuck there. So I must have all these other symptoms because I'm weak, because I, whatever, you know, like I'm not getting the help I need. I'm just not a good enough person. We'll put all sorts of meaning to it. But, but, but complex PTSD is developed over time. Like you mentioned earlier, child abuse, a child who has these negligence, abandonment, um, emotional, psychological, financial, spiritual abuse, and not just a child, adults, all sorts of adults experience these things. And when it's an ongoing thing, that's like, it's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad that actually creates its own kind of traumatic event in your experience. But it's like a stream of events that communicate one major injury. And same thing, if you're feeling like you cannot get out of that event, you're trapped in it, you're a child, you're absolutely feeling trapped. If you're a spouse, there could be a number of reasons you feel trapped, safety, uh, culture, whatever it might be, that can also get filed away in the same place. So I know it's a long answer, but this we talked earlier about how trauma gets thrown around so casually as a word, and yet there's some really distinct pieces of it that distinguish it from like, oh, that was a hard day and I feel tired versus, wow, every time I step outside my house and I hear a bird, you know, all of a sudden I'm having a panic attack. Like, what is it with the birds and the panic attacks? And so that's because something has been unprocessed and remains in the brainstem part of the body. And we would say, yeah, you're experiencing trauma or unprocessed trauma. <laughs> That was a very, very beautiful, very detailed, it was very detailed. <laughs> understanding of trauma. I, I don't think I could have, even on my best day, even if I thought about it, even if it was a homework assignment and I had seven days to do it, <laughs> could, could have painted the picture as perfectly as you did. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Marcy. I've been around it. So, yeah. No doubt. No doubt. No doubt. When you was telling me about, you know, you was a foster parent, it reminded me of a story, and this is way, way off topic, <laughs> not really, but it reminded me of somebody in my past many, 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 many moons ago. The funny story, her name was Marcy as well, to be honest. <laughs> Marcy Flowers. Oh, I hope she, oh, well, that's a pretty name, and I hope she was a good human. Is this going somewhere good? <laughs> Maybe not. It's going somewhere. <laughs> oh, okay. Marcy was um she was in foster care and um mm. she experienced trauma. No, but you know, she went into foster care because of trauma. You know, her parents weren't, like you said, good humans. Unfortunately, the people that fostered her additionally weren't good humans. And she suffered a lot of abuse in that system. And I often wonder, you know, what happened to Marcy and you know, as a child, there's not much I could have done, you know what I'm saying? Just being the good friend that I was. She was a good friend of my sister and myself. We always played games and, she, you know, they would, she would come over to our house or we will go over there and play games and spend time with each other. We went to school together, everything like that. But I remember when she went away and then my sister was telling me what she felt, you know, what Marcy was telling her that she wouldn't necessarily tell me because I was a boy. Um, 
and what probably led to her not being in our lives anymore. Mm. That's a good, mm -mm, I can tell her my age. That's a long time ago. <laughs> and I, I wonder, I wonder what happened to her. Um, you are, you are, you, you've done foster care. What brought you to want to be that role, to be that caring person to a population that and many times are really, really hurting because of something that happened to them that caused them to go into the system. I had been studying to be a social worker and I was in a social work program at my university and in that program learned how great the need is and was for homes for foster kids. At that time in my community, there, were, there weren't even enough homes not just to keep siblings together, but to even keep them in the same city. So they were having to send kids out of, out of their communities, away from their schools, away from their neighbors and friends. Like it's one thing to lose already your, your family, but then to also lose all the other support elements as well and be sent off is, is just compounds the, the traumatic event, right? Like makes it so much more nuanced with more caveats. But then I also learned that um, we have we have a Hmong community here, and if I, I'm pretty sure this was the community. There were some who work in our fields, um, and they were even placing kids in some of those homes where English wasn't spoken at all because they could provide food and shelter. And so learning that, and I think, I mean, Hmong families can be great families. The ones I'm referring to specifically were, were just like, we just need a, a bed and food, it doesn't matter if you even speak the same language. So there was just such a desperation to find homes that I thought, well, gosh, like what if I could at least take one kid or two kids or three kids? Like, I know that's just a little drop in the bucket of need, but it's something that's three or however many kids like not being shipped off somewhere or not being placed in a home where they don't speak the language. And so that's kind of what began it for me is I, I just started the process and thought, okay, let's just see what comes of it. And learned. I mean, there's so many rules and uh, there's a whole certification program and it's important. Lots of training. And either I was like rosy eyed about it or they didn't train us to really fully expect the amount of need that the kids would have come. I guess they don't want to scare parents off um, because some of the reality would. But it would also let families make a better and more informed decision about fostering. And it would also allow them to be to already gain and gather the supports that they need and the resources. But I don't know if it's much better now. But at the time, we just felt totally blindsided by the needs of the kids. I had been working as a behavior analyst. I had worked in social services. Like I was really good at what I did. And then I found that the kids that we were fostering, like my tools didn't work on them. And that was shocking. I've eventually depleted my toolbox. I'm like, there's literally nothing in here that's working anymore. And that's when I began to understand the difference between the kids I had worked with that had like emotional delays or developmental delays or like just, you know, behavior issues because of parenting discipline. The difference between them and a child who has like an initial origin of family wound where the brain has rewired. So that meerkat has said, oh, wow we were supposed to 100% be able to rely on the fact that this mom or this dad would keep us safe and provide for us. And they couldn't. Therefore, anyone who steps into that position, we're really, really skeptical about. So what happens 
is these beautiful, loving, kind-hearted foster families or adoptive families step in to fill that role for kids. But for a lot of them, not all of them, but for a lot of them, their meerkat is on high alert, like, mm-mm, we know about you. We know about people who fill these shoes. And you'll get kids who are super charming and kind of strangers because the meerkat goes, well, you seem safe. But really, really, um, lots. It, well, they're fight or flight. They're living from a place of survival when they're trying to interact with a new caregiver. I didn't know any of that. So I'm just like trying to pour out love onto these kids because my love's going to heal them. And then they're going to be so grateful and I'll have saved lives. You know, there's this whole story that I didn't like actively realize I had until it was all being unmet. And that's when I realized like, what's going on here? What's the problem? And then I thought it was me. And that's another thing is a lot of foster families, adoptive families think they are the broken piece of the puzzle. Like, of course the kid has issues. We all expect them to be in recovery with underdeveloped brains, traumatized minds. And then we also know that like love heals. I mean, I think that's like a message that we say, right? So if the love isn't healing and love doesn't break and the kid isn't healing and, and then, well, I'm the middle piece. And so it becomes something where there's a lot of shame, a lot of regret, a lot of fear, a lot of doubt. Um, when in reality, we all just needed to know. We just needed to know that kids who've gone through that get a rewired brain in some ways. And okay, then what are the strategies to approach a child who thinks I'm going to kill them? Like physically, emotionally, psychologically, their meerkat is on high alert for that safety. And yet I want to demonstrate love. So I have a whole book on that too. It's called Parenting Children of Trauma. Um, and I go into definitions of trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, complex PTSD, all the things are listed in there. And then lots of good strategies for families who are trying to work with these kids to kind of get around some of that neurological wiring and to help it heal and begin to disassociate. That's what it needs to do. The belief that, oh, because that one parent failed, all caregivers who step into that position will fail. And we can, ah, thanks. <laughs> and we can actually... Um, there's good work that we can do to disassociate that so that, again, this is what I'm talking about. It stayed in their brainstem. So now it's like always present. That must be you. And we can begin to help it categorize into like, no, that was your first parent, but people love you. And how do you get to experience that love? It's a process. It's not easy and it's not for everyone, but I think it's important to talk about because if we truly love these kids, then we need to be telling people what it entails to love them and then equipping people to do it really, really well. And some of that equipping is just accurate expectations and removing, distancing yourself from like the shame of their behavior being a result of you being good enough or not good enough. That's the biggest piece of it. So that's some of my experience with fostering and adopting and how I now coach um, families. I do a lot of speaking, a lot of writing on it because yeah, I want people, <laughs> kind of like we talked about earlier, to um, have more than I had. And I was pretty informed. I was a social worker. Like I thought, oh my gosh, for all the people who go in just like normal people who didn't spend all this time educate, like in their professional education, learning about it. Like I can't even imagine how blindsided they felt when I felt like knocked off my feet over it. So now I try to do trainings and events to bring awareness to that so we can all just do a better job. Indeed, indeed. Yes, your book, Parenting Children of Trauma, the Foster Adoption Guide to Understanding Attachment Disorder. 
attachment disorder is a disorder that is widely, widely misunderstood. So I'm glad that you produced yeah. this book and brought it to the forefront so the common person, as well as therapists like myself and others, can get a better understanding of it, especially as it pertains to this population. Yes. Because even though we go to school and we're supposed to learn all the attributes of mental health and how it impacts, I promise you, this particular concept is often overlooked in our training programs. Yes. The impact that trauma has on the foster care population is often overlooked. In fact, I only remember, if I remember correctly, maybe a paragraph in all my years of schooling that might have touched on this particular subject. And that's why I think it's important to bring to the forefront. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you for bringing that to the forefront. One of our watchers, listeners, or whatever they want to call us, <laughs> say, one of our faithful audience members will say, we won't say subscribers, we'll just say supporters. Okay. We'd like to know something. Here's a question for them. I have a story. Oh, that's not how they talk. Let me, let me do it like how they talk. I'm sorry. <clears throat> me, 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 me. me. <laughs> I'm a voice actor. Mm. I have a story. <laughs> I want to write about it. Where do I start? Yeah, that's such a good question. And actually... And the only reason they asked you because I told them in advance about yeah. the many, many, many books <laughs> from your vast collection of writing. You've been, you've been quite the writer over the years. Over here at Motor Therapy, we are very envious of your writing success. Before you go into, you know, answering that question, and thank you for addressing this for the, yeah. the faithful supporter of the Motor Therapy podcast. Let's just go over real quick some of the books you've written yeah. over time. We got Forever Homes. Tell us about Forever Homes. Yeah, so Forever Homes is a young adult novel. It's a bit dystopian. It was, it came to me as an image of these two kids. I could see their backs. It's actually, I tried to get it to be part of the cover and it is. Um, they're kind of holding hands. I could see it was an older sister and a younger boy. And they're, they're kind of looking out into the city under an archway. And that's how the story came to me. Um, it's about a society in which there's been a major kind of global collapse of the different economies. Um, everyone's trying to rebuild. And so what was kind of, you know, the United States is trying to rebuild. And one of the ways they're trying to cut costs is to reduce uh, the amount of time children are in foster care. So they start this initiative, the Forever Homes Initiative, to get kids placed um, sooner and sooner. So by their first year, it's like, okay, every kid by 17, we want to get them in. Okay, next year, every kid by 16. And so they're progressively trying to get more kids in homes. But um, my main character ends up discovering that forever homes are not always an actual home with a loving family. And I'm going to leave it there because I don't want to give away all the mystery <laughs> of the dystopian story. Uh, that's yeah. That has kind of that foster dot theme. And what does it look like to try to put a price on a human life and save money and cut costs mm -hmm. at the expense of actual mm -hmm. human life? The crazy thing this is like one of those stories on Black Mirror on Netflix. This could actually manifest. Our reality is too close to this for this not to be an almost true story yeah. or a story in our near future. Yeah, I it's there, ugh, there's so many dystopian stories that I watch 
or read and go, oh man, they're not that far off, are they? Right. The abundance of less. A social experiment of not buying anything new for one year. Well, at first, let me say something. <laughs> Everybody in my life would probably say that I should have about 10 of these books for my own personal <laughs> behaviors. Amazon.com is my, my Achilles heel. Yeah. Because we're in the city I live in, I can get it in one. I can get it on the same day, actually. <laughs> yeah. The abundance of less. I remember at one time, when I, especially when I came back from the war, I was like, honey, my wife at the time, we should live a minimalist lifestyle. And we both said, yeah, sure. Because, you know, in the military, we were pretty minimalist, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, we... We did that for a while, and then we got to the point where, you know, more is better. But tell us, the abundance of less. Yeah. Tell us about that. So every year I tried to think of a new challenge, not a New Year's resolution per se, but just like, what can I do to sort of challenge myself this year? And mm -hmm. in, I think it was 2010, <laughs> 2010, I have to reread my own books to remember some of these details. I was driving along, and the idea came to me, man, I bet there is so much excess in America that a family, more than one for sure, could go an entire year and not need to buy anything new because there's just so much everywhere. And then it struck me that that would be a fun experiment. I also immediately thought to myself, this sounds like divine inspiration because I never would have thought to go try to like, there was, it wasn't something I spent a lot of time thinking about. I wasn't already minimalistic in any way. I mean, I care about the planet, but I feel like to care about the planet, there's so much opportunity for hypocrisy that I end up just like not I'm being paralyzed if we're going to talk about a freeze response, <laughs> being paralyzed because, yeah, I feel like if I start, I need to do all of the things to protect the planet. And all that to say, that's just kind of where I was already when this idea came to me. And so we agreed as a family to try for one year to not buy anything new. I still had a baby in diapers, so I did buy diapers. Like there were some exceptions, toilet paper, <laughs> diapers. Um, but they have been for any holiday, you were either getting like a handmade gift from us or something reused and repurposed. And in that year, I discovered one community. Like I think when we can just hop on Amazon and buy the thing and it shows up on our porch, we miss the human interaction and community of what it means to support each other. And, Hey, I have something you need. Oh, and you have something I need. And there's this whole thing where you feel cared for by a community, which actually supports our survival skill. Like a threat to our survival isn't just physical. It is also about identity and belonging. And so when those things are threatened, we feel the same survival response. And so there's a lot of ways in our society that we've, um, without being aware of it, isolated ourselves and perpetuated this belief that um, we both have to take care of ourselves and then and then can't uh, just like quickly that's the pandemic it, it 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 that the trauma of that couldn't could be more severe than the physical experiences with covid right and i don't mean to diminish that in any way but the way that it has impacted our sense of belonging and community is huge so I learned how important, like how community could show up in a challenge like that for each other. Um, I also learned that you can buy brand new, still in their wrapper things from thrift stores. <laughs> so there were times for the holidays I had something that looked new, but I bought it at a thrift store. It also, um, one of the other exceptions we had to buy new things was like a locally, a local artist. 
So if we traveled somewhere or like I knew a friend, I don't know, made something, like I would put my dollars towards her and her business and gift that thing. So instead of me making it, she made it. So there were some things there. We talk about all of that in the book, the failures, because there were definitely moments where we failed the successes and then, and then just the overall value of it. And it's not a do all or do nothing kind of story. It's like, Hey, we're real life humans trying to live well within the means that we have. And what if we just did one thing or what if we just did the next thing? And it was such a powerful experience. So I will tell you the end you can, you can live in America and probably many countries for more than a year and not need to wait, buy wait, 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 <laughs> for the ending of the story. You have to know how we get there. But yeah, spoiler alert, you can do it. <laughs> there is that much excess in, you know, Western culture. So indeed, indeed. Oh, yes, it is. I'm looking at it every single day, especially in my attic and outside storage. I'm disturbed. I'm disturbed. I'm disturbed. Well, and it has an emotional impact on us. I mean, you saying yeah. I'm disturbed, it's like a joke, but it's also not, right? Like, right. No, I'm not joking. I'm disturbed. Speaking to us all the time, the things mm-hmm. are communicating with us. I mean, Marie Kondo talks about that a little bit, right? But like, we're, we don't have this conscious awareness around how things are communicating messages to us all the time. And so, yeah, are you exhausted? It could be that all the things keep yelling at you and you, you can't even be in your house because it's so loud. Right. So anyway, all that's in there. It's a great book. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. It's like a must buy, especially for me and my clan. Thank you yeah. for that. Speranza's sweater, one child's uh-huh. journey through foster care and adoption, illustrated by Beatrice Mello, who's That's a right. phenomenal, phenomenal illustrator. Yeah. But I don't know, but just by looking at this cover, I could tell she that person does the damn thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I I am also a I offer publishing services and I do that as a result of having published so many things myself. And so I've hired all of my own illustrators, done all of the book design production or hired out the pieces but i have a whole team and um so beatrice finding her was perfect because it's exactly what it says i'm chronicling a child's journey from the removal of her home through adoption and i wanted to therapeutically create a space for kids to see another child feeling all of the feelings making all of the mistakes and still being loved and wanted and having a belonging place and So obviously her story isn't every kid's story. Not every kid ends up adopted. And there's a little note in there that explains that, acknowledges that. Um, There's a glossary of terms at the end. But because it's such a heavy topic, I wanted a very particular style of art that was light, but still connected to reality. You know, like I didn't want the straight, like paint the perfect picture of humans, but I wanted some playfulness, but also not in an irreverent kind of way. So super challenging to try to get the art to balance the seriousness of the text. And she did it. I mean, just fantastically, she did it. So it's a crowd favorite for sure. And some of my favorite, favorite fan mail from that book is when I hear that a child read it and said, oh my gosh, mama, that's me. That's me. Because, oh gosh, see, that makes me want to cry too. Like just that kids could see themselves represented in the world um, of all kinds and of all experiences. But this is where I got to create a space for at least these kids to go through and um, see themselves, see themselves loved, even though they're on their own journey with trauma and to make space for it. And then it also models for adults what that might look like on the journey as well as they're present with the kids. Speranza sweater. 
Indeed, indeed. That sounds like it's like a wonderful story. I definitely, I definitely want to check that one out. I'll be, yeah. According to Corbin, this one illustrated by Daniela Sosa. Uh huh. Yeah. So that one and the next one, Bath Time Magic, are two books of the same series. And they're just fun and playful. But I never do anything surface level. Like I always have layered meaning in there somewhere. It's just how I think and it's how I work. So, um, both of those books are about the imagination of a child and you get to see life through their eyes. According to Corbin specifically, when you turn the page, um, you get to see reality. So you see the story through the child's eyes with the text, you turn the page and you just get this image of what's actually going on. So for example, in one scene, you know, Corbin jumps on a horse and he's got his sword and he's going like, I'm going to go rescue the princess. And when you turn the page, you see that his mom is like scrubbing the floor and he's jumped on her back. And he's got a broom and she's like just trying to get her housework done. So the layer there is like mom learning how to kind of engage the play and direct it in a way that doesn't destroy it. And Corbin learning how his play could be a little more considerate. <laughs> but that's, that's never like stated in the text. It just happens through the story. And Bath Time Magic is the sequel that follows up. Um, and it's specifically focused on bath time and a fun little, fun little twist at the end there too about um, – whether his, it's his imagination or whether it's actually reality. Weirdo and Willie. Yeah. That's an interesting name. Uh -huh. Tell us more. I love it. Uh, so when I was a kid, um, I had an experience on, in PE where we were out at the softball field and I was a really shy kind of awkward kid. And um, so this moment for me felt like a traumatic event, even though to many others it wouldn't have. But we had come in from being out in fields. We were relining up. And my classmate said, no, 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 we're starting a new line. You have to go to the end. Okay. So I went to the end of the line. And the kids, there were like, no, no, no. We're lining up the same way we were so everyone gets a fair chance. Okay. So I go back to my place. No, no, no. So I finally went and asked the teacher, like, where do I go? And she told me. I don't even remember the answer. But all of the kids in the, in the class began to chant narc at me, which, you know, there's a special connotation to that. It tells you where I grew up. Narc, 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 which essentially means tattletale. And I was just mortified and I kept it in. And then, you know, the story continues. Well, one day I thought, man, if I could go back in time and like create a story around that, what would I want to happen? And the original book was that um, when all the kids were calling narc, a creature came by the name of narc. Like they thought they were calling, they were calling him. And then he ate up all the bullies and we lived happily ever after. So that was the original idea. Many, many drafts later, <laughs> Weirdo and Willie. Willie is a kid who's taunted at school. He's made fun of. He's called Weirdo. Willie is a weirdo. And one day, an actual weirdo, a creature, shows up thinking that they want to play. He does not eat all of the kids, but it does become a story of uh, bullying, self-acceptance, um, friendship, like unlikely friendship. And it's something that actually, when I think about therapeutic writing, by reimagining something that had been so traumatic to me, I actually gave my body a new experience with the same event and got to walk away feeling more resilient, feeling like I wasn't frozen on that field anymore, being taunted, but that I had actually created a way out by writing this story. And that's some of what I do with my story coaching is help people, whether it's for children, whether it's their own memoir, discover and experience healing on the way because we don't even realize it like I, when i wrote this i had no idea that's what i was doing no idea now that i understand trauma being stuck in the in the brainstem 
I realized that every sensory event we do is what actually addresses that trauma, not the talk therapy that we do. The talk therapy talks to the owl, but the owl's like up in a tree somewhere staying safe. We need to talk to the tiger. And so unbeknownst to me, I took myself on a therapeutic journey with that memory. It's no longer traumatic to me because I gave myself a new story. So that's Weirdo and Willie. And I, and I really wanted it to be something that boys and girls would, um, would like, but also that they would walk away with, wow, I can't, I just need to matter to me. The bullies at the end don't have this big repentant moments. They're in it. But someone once kind of complained about that in a review, like, man, there wasn't this big aha. And there wasn't this big, you know, redemptive turn of the bullies. And I thought, oh my gosh, they're right. I totally forgot to do that. And then when I read it, I was like, no, you know what? Because it was never about the bullies. It's about learning to love ourselves, accept ourselves. And as we live from that, if people choose to engage it, great. If not, it's fine too, because I know I have worth and value. So that's Weirdo and Willie's journey. Indeed. And also by not addressing the, I don't know, the happy ending, by us changing our mind state as it pertains to the bullies, that is the win. That is. That's it. And by writing, I have to do that for myself too. You're, right? you're removing you're removing their power. You're taking their power from them because it's, their power is only derived by the interactions with you and your succumption to them. So, I think with that, your your reviewer was wrong in that way. Yeah. Turkeys, 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 turkeys. There are many voices in the world telling us that we're too much. Of this are too much of that. I wrote a song about it. Y'all probably remember it, 1989. It was something like this. This or that. This or that. This or that. This or that. Here's the black sheep. Where's the black? Okay, that's so enough. <laughs> go, go. <laughs> Sometimes the voices say that we're not enough of this or not enough of that. If we believe these messages, we miss out on living out the wonder and beauty of being exactly who we were made to be. I tell people all this all the time. Oh, I'm bipolar. Oh, I'm schizophrenic. Oh, I'm this, I'm that. No, you're not. You're diagnosed with, yes. you are not that. Yep. You are not your label. There are no labels. You, are, you may have attributes associated with, but you are not that. You are Emily, or you are yes. James. You are Michael. You are Marcy. You are Felipe. Not you are schizophrenic. Not you yep. are bipolar. Not even you are depressed or you are anxious. Right. But that, but to the story, this story really caught my eye because Turkeys, 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 tell us about Turkeys. Turkeys is my first baby. Like he, and he is a baby. He's a wild turkey chick who was born in the wild, just like all his siblings. But he was born with Herculean strength. And so everything he does, learning to live, eating, hunting, sleeping is catastrophic for everyone. And he begins to develop a bit of a complex about his own value or contribution to his family. And, um, but sweet mama the whole time, you know, while she's like being tossed through the air when he's learning to fly or the craters in the earth when he's learning to peck the ground and eat, you know, the whole time she's like, no, you're just right. Um, and there's just a fun little twist at the end where he does learn how to utilize his strengths for good. And his family gets to see it too. It's easy to say, oh, you're like this, you're all bad. You just said this. You're like this, you're all good. And no, we are all given unique design and wiring and we can choose to use that for good and we can choose to use it for bad. And 
same with our diagnoses. Like they, you know, we talk about disabilities and abilities, but yes, there may be limitations, but we all have limitations. They just look different from one another. So what does it look like to be aware of your limitations and then invite support and help where you need it and to be aware of your strengths and to give the support and help where you can. And so that's the story of Turkeles. He's on a journey learning how to, again, love himself, um, but also what are the, so the actual strengths that he brings? And in his case, he feels like he's too much, but you might feel like you're not enough. Whatever it is, you're just right. That's what Mama Gobbler would tell you. You're just right. Oh, Turkeles. Turkeles. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And we spoke about this book uh -huh. earlier. Yeah, that's the first one to the parenting mm -hmm. children trauma. So the and hope coming mm -hmm. to challenge as a parent and foster mm -hmm. and adopted children. Yeah. Based on this book won some awards. I mean, this you've seen to always be in contention of winning a yeah. Royal Dragonfly Book Award. Tell us about this award. Yeah. I've never heard of it until this time. And yeah. I mean, I'm really feeling kind of some kind of way. It's like, uh oh, tell me how <laughs> tell me how I could win a Royal Dragonfly. What do I need to do? Yeah, so you can nominate your book or someone else can nominate it. Um, often for book awards, there's fees associated. So you're in competition and then judges go through all of the entries and make decisions. And so I've actually, I don't, gosh, as you've gone through, I wasn't paying, I, all of my books, I think, have at least won a, like, an award. Um, and so the Royal Dragonfly is one of those. I don't know what else to tell you about them, but there's, um, a number of award platforms out there and I yeah had the deep honor of being recognized by them for this particular book which was my first one on foster care and adoption and it was like I was just kind of raising my hand like anyone else think this is hard because when I was in the training I just saw posters of beautifully blended families holding hands running through fields of wildflowers and I'm trying to like actually put out fires and you know wipe poop off of the wall and like <laughs> where is that poster and so this book is more like my deep dive into understanding my initial um challenges I pulled a bunch of people and then I wrote it again like as a social worker as a therapist but also as a mom going through it together and the point is that we're reclaiming hope like it's it's so easy to say oh this is hard everything's dismal there's no hope like no there absolutely is we just have to um, be informed. We have to be informed. So I inform. Indeed, indeed, indeed. So that's the follow-up that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And while we slept, you talked about this, one of the yeah, yeah, the traumatic so event that happened to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the murder mm -hmm. of my, my mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. And then you have these women empowerment books. Dun, 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 dun. I just, I just I have a chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, watch out. Let me find a sound effect for that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, becoming women of worth. Yes, tell us. Yeah. You say you just have a chapter in it. I have. Say, ah, you know you messed up when you said that, right? That I have Remember? a chapter. Oh, I just, you just have a uh, chapter in that. I know. I'm like, versus the books we just went through. I, yeah, I was a contributor to be part of a compilation of stories that are so powerful. And I mean, we need books on becoming men of worth too. And it's not that you're becoming, it's not because like you don't have it. It's like stepping into what you have. 
And I think you've probably caught that thread through everything I write is that you would see your worth and value and then learn how to maximize that for good and see the parts of just your humanness where it's less developed, it's less mature and invite the supports, the growth, the people who are strong there into your, your community, into your fellowship of the ring, you know, so to speak. Um, Versus like just berating ourselves the whole time for not being like everybody else. And so that is something that I'm passionate about people experiencing in anything they interact with me on is like, no, you don't have to walk around with shame. Um, you have worth and value. And when we live from that belief, like when I learned that for myself, which was only a couple of years ago, I thought that other people gave it to me as if they were holding up mirrors all the time, reflecting my value to me. And it was like, sometimes good, sometimes not. And I just believed it. And then through the traumatic events, some of which I explained, I got to such deep pits that all I could see was my value. That's a kind of interesting thing. Like you think you get to the pit and you see like the, your trash, but I actually realized that, um, that I couldn't make anyone happy enough to show, to truly reflect my worth and value. And I had, healthy people in my life to also speak that truth to me, you know, to say, no, you're more than you think you are. You're more than your trauma. You are not your trauma. And, and kind of like lift me up. And then as I owned that belief for myself, like now I can enter all of my relationships and not need anything back. Previously, I had this little anxious energy, like, am I going to be good enough? What are you going to say? You're like the little puppy, like, am I going to get the treat? Did I do a good job? And, and it was just this underlying thing. And now I just get to be now I get to just come, but that's a result of my own work with my worth and value. And now I'm like, well, I want everyone to have that. I don't care if you're a kid reading my book, if you're listening to a TED talk, if you're here on this podcast, I want you to know that you matter and that your story matters. So that was how you started. How do I start my story? We never even addressed that question. I mean, you, we did. Yeah. We went the long way around. We did. And, you know, I, we did. I felt we did. that people needed to know that for the answer. Yeah. You're not just speaking to somebody who's speaking on it. They're speaking to somebody that did it, did it, and did it well, doing it, doing it, and doing it well. Do so, yes, yes. They have a story and they want to write about it. Can you give them some insight on how they can start maybe yeah. writing, not only just writing a story, but getting it published or getting yeah. it in the hands of others? So I dropped a, a, um, a chat, I think, in the link that only you might see. I'm not sure. It's in our, it's in our chat here. It's my press site, miramarepontepress.com slash start your story. Yeah, there it is. It's on the screen. So that is a challenge actually that I'm doing. What is it? Today's Friday. Oh my gosh. Like two weeks from today, it'll start. And I'm taking people through that exact process. How do you start your story? I'll still give you a little bit here, but it's a two day. It's like 90 minutes for two days plus a third day Q and A. And by the end of that, you will know how to start your specific story, not just um, any story. It's not your story. How do you start your story? So as a story coach, what I always recommend is that people just start writing, like just start there. The part about our brains that I touched on earlier, where moving and dislodging that unprocessed trauma that's hanging out in our brainstem with the tiger is a sensory act. Anytime we are allowing our bodies to express themselves uncensored, we're beginning to do really good work with that unprocessed trauma. Even if you don't understand it, you don't have a name for it. You don't have a therapist there to interpret it. When you allow your body to express itself, it wants to. Your brain is geared, defaulted towards wanting to heal, right? But we we ought, we get scared and we push it down because healing is 
scary, right? Scary. <laughs> so, um, so I always say first, just write down the words, all of them. Don't worry like, oh my gosh, what if my aunt sees this or my kid sees this or my ex sees this or man, if I'll be swearing all over this page and I, nobody knows me to be a swearer, but I will be, you know, like, okay, do it because there's that, that brain some part needs to be heard. It has something to say. And just because you're writing it down now does not mean it's going to be in the final version. So the first version of anything you write is for you. It's allowing your tiger to be heard. And most of us have not listened very well. That's why it becomes, we call it psychosomatic, right? Like you begin to have, you know, fatigue or headaches or hip problems. You get a lot of lower body problems with people who've experienced traumatic events because you geared to fight or flee. And even though you felt that maybe in your bracing heart, you didn't realize that all of your muscles prepared too. So then you don't stretch afterwards. So then you get tight muscles. So we can just prevent all of that if we allow ourselves uncensored sensory work that can be dance. It can be anything with music. It can be fine arts, something that requires some movement, some kinesthetic experience, but you're not, you're not censoring it. So writing the writing, anything you write first draft for you, let it come out however it wants. Second draft, I always say, okay, begin to think about the person you most want to impact with your story. Who are they? What do they need from you? What are they desperate for? And then we begin to massage what is there the first draft into something that serves that person. So that's just the gist. I, I won't get into like the whole coaching spiel that I would do, but that's what I walk people through is understanding that process. How do you, when you're writing your story and you get to the hard parts and you feel it because it's in your brainstem, so it gets present again, and you feel like you're back in the moment, how do we prepare for those? What does it look like to set up a cushion and some buffer around you at those times so you can sit with the ugly feelings recognizing that you're currently safe, even though it's triggered and keep working through it or taking a break and coming back to it. Like a lot of people quit there. Like, nope, too, too close. Can't touch this. It's too hard. Never mind. Whereas like, that's the healing work. And so if you've got someone like me saying, no, this is the healing work. Here are some strategies you can put in place. You're not alone. You're safe. Let's get through it. Then you get that story written and we massage it into something that benefits the world. That's the, that's the quick answer. So join me for the challenge if you're interested. Um, I love walking people through this process. I want everyone to have their best start. And that's miramaripontepress.com slash start your story. Indeed, indeed. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for coming on the More Good Theory podcast. Will you leave us with some words to carry us out into the beautiful night? Yeah, I will. Let me think about what they are. Take your time. Uh, uh, just yeah, take your time. So I have a quote hanging on my wall. It's Nelson yes. Mandela. And he says, mm. um, may your choices reflect your hope and not your fear. And I think the reason I resonate with that so much is I can default to the fearful choice so often. And then I'm missing out on the best that I can be for life and the best that life can give me. And then I have a faith perspective. I'm a Christian. And so there's also this element of like, I'm missing out on the invitations and opportunities that God might be giving me um, in fear. And I never, I don't, I don't want to get to the end of my life and think like, man, I wish I'd 
not been so afraid. And I now have a record of, of incidences where I did the hard, scary thing and it turned out amazing. I've also got incidents where I did the hard, scary thing and it sucked. But like the times where it didn't, I created this, like this mental, mem like muscle, muscle, muscle memory almost that tells me that on the other side of good, healthy things that are also scary, there's such incredible opportunity in the world and in life and in relationship. And so that's what I'd want to leave with your listeners, your audience, your supporters, the people. Um, man, if you can work towards letting your choices and your decisions reflect hope instead of fear and um, being wise, I don't mean recklessly, but with wisdom, step into things that are like that terrifying yes and watching how it can expand what and how you contribute to the world. There's such a healing element of that. Every time we overcome something hard, we show our bodies that we overcome hard things and that actually builds and develops our resilience. So the next time we're in a traumatic event, we actually have more resources and tools to bring to it just as a result from our daily lives, choosing to say yes to those scary things, the, the good scary things. So you can do it. And I believe that you can do it. And will you stumble along the way and sometimes give into fear? Me too. hundred percent. Yes. But you can also borrow my belief. You can borrow his belief that if you need to borrow it, that you're capable and able of choosing the best thing for yourself, even the next thing, or just the next thing, choose the best healthy thing. And you're going to be on a journey towards healing, but not just yourself, our own journeys with healing heal the community around us and heal the world around us. It's so powerful. So I just want to encourage you, the title, you are not your trauma. There's nothing you've experienced that defines you. There's nothing, nothing that you've experienced that defines you. And so live your life from a place of hope and not from a place of fear or a life of um, labels, mis mislabeled identities. Like, don't do that. Live from hope. Indeed, indeed. Thank you. Thank you once again, Miss Marcy, for blessing us with these wonderful pieces of literature, bibliographs. <laughs> Thank you for your presence and your words regarding trauma and helping these people understand that they are not their trauma, that they are more than their traumatic experiences. And they don't necessarily have to go to therapy. They can go to a person like you who does coaching regarding trauma. Thank you for your work in regards to foster care and getting this good word, these good words out to help people understand it, not necessarily from a therapist's lips, but in a way that they can understand and it makes sense to them. Thank you for you know, making it more palatable. And I do appreciate that. Yeah. Please hit her up at her website, you know what I'm saying? MarcyPusey.com. <laughs> Did I say it right? It's close. Puse? It works. Puse. 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 Pussy? Like P-U-C. 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 Marcy, I'll say it. Let me just start from scratch. Remix. <laughs> Marcy, P-U-S-A. 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 It's yes. faster, faster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having too much fun with this last I name. <laughs> M-A-R-C-Y-P-U-S-E-Y. Dot com. I say it again. M-A-R-C-Y-P-U-S-E-Y.com. She's definitely someone you want to get to know. And don't forget to check out her movement. Go to her website, 
Mira, please say it for me. Miramari, Miramari Ponte Press. It's Italian. It's so meaningful. No one can say it. I didn't think about that long ago. And I don't know. Ponteprescom slash start your story. You can also get there from rcpc.com. So if you yes. just click on, there's a press link. You can, it'll take you right over there. But join that challenge or reach out to me. I'm on Instagram at Marcy Marie. And so if you're just like, eh, how do I reach her and ask the things? Um, that's a great way to get connected. And I can send you links there too. Indeed, indeed. Well, thank you. Thank you thank once you. again for your presence yeah. and blessing us with your presence and the information that you gave us on this occasion. And that concludes another Modern Therapy podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe by pushing the play, wherever you push play to listen to your favorite podcast. That's the More Than Therapy podcast available on wherever you push play to listen to your favorite podcast. Be well, be great.